Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 17th, 2017. First hour, bizarre. Second hour, fantastic. That's all I got to say. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage. I mean, just, it's, we're suffering from a plethora of (laughs) just awful False teaching, false prophecies, nonsense being passed off as words from God. And uh, what we're trying to do is teach you how to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula apparently we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being taught out there in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, by all of these people, it doesn't even come close to squaring with what God's Word says at all. And it's getting worse. It's actually getting more openly like apostates, more openly like heretical. Clear statements are being made that absolutely contradict God's word. And there's no repercussions. There's no accountability. There seems to be no stopping it. In fact, if you point it out, then you're the problem. You're the one causing division in the body of Christ. Not the false teachers. You, you <laughs> who actually loves God's word and, you know, <clears throat> are doing what it tells you to do regarding false teachers. So, let's talk about what we're going to... We're going to end the week off here. Oh, man, has it been a crazy week. Anyway, we're going to end the week off here. We're going to start with William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times update. And, (laughs) uh, yeah, so he's uh, going to be revealing for us a shocking prophecy. Mm Mm-hmm. Shocking prophecy. Apparently on September 23rd, 2017, 
the uh, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, William Tapley, has prophesied that Donald Trump will become a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to hear him talking about that today. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Then we're going to check in with uh, Ryan Lestrange. We're going to do a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. I, you know, I'm doing my best to try to get these prophetic words out to you in a timely manner. And I know it's the end of the week and you were counting on this word from God so that you can figure out how to order your week and stuff like my apologies, my apologies. It's, you know, I, I understand that, you know, there's still, (laughs) there's still tomorrow, Saturday. I mean, the, the, the new week begins on Sunday. So you still can apply this to your life for the remainder of today and tomorrow. And then, you know, the fresh word thingy from God will, you know, come, (laughs) come in next week. And although I'm really, really struggling to get these out in a timely manner. And uh, then we're going to check in with, um, (laughs) Vonda, the nagging prophetess, no joke. She is prophesying that Barack Obama is going to be re-sworn in as the president of the United States. Oh, and we're going to get bombed by, uh, North Korea. So, you know, I mean, we're doomed. I mean, there's just no way around it. I mean, considering her accuracy rate, which is um, <laughs> worse than a National League um, bullpen pitcher, uh, his batting average. Um, you know, I mean, we're, we're just doomed. I mean, that's all there's do- doomed. We're doomed. And then uh, to end off our number one, we're going to check in with um, Joseph Prince, Joseph Prince. As he's going to explain to us the secrets of Moses' youthfulness. Yeah. So apparently he's getting direct revelation from God so that he can, you know, he can ask God direct questions. You know, hey, how come this is happening in the Bible? And although the Bible doesn't say, hey, he's so tight with God that, you know, God sits there and goes, well, of course, the reason for that is this, that, or the other thing. And then in hour number two, hour number two. We are going to listen to uh, this year's Shepherds Conference lecture given by Phil Johnson titled No Other Gospel, The True Gospel of Christ. It is a barn burner, and it is so good. That's all I got to say. And so we'll we'll end the week off with a little bit of sanity in the midst of all of the insanity. That's the only way I can describe it. So uh, all I can say is you you might want to be sitting sitting down since we're going to begin with a William Tapley third eagle of the apocalypse co-prophet of the end times update. Let's get to it. Here we go. Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune, doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon, very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon, doom and gloom. Very soon, rapture comes at night or noon, doom and gloom. Very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. All right, so uh, we're heading over to uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, and his shocking prophecy 
uh, he's the he wants to make sure that everybody understands he's the prophet that discovered this prophecy and uh, and he wants all the credit for it because when this goes down everybody will know just how amazingly accurate and prophetic William Tapley really is. Here's William Tapley to reveal the shocking prophecy regarding Trump. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. This will be part four in my series on the amazing end times prophecies as found in Micah chapter number five. Micah 5. Okay. Because in that chapter, he explains what will happen on this date of the great sign. In other words, on September 23rd, 2017. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, what am I looking at? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know how to explain what I'm looking at. Well, I'll make make an attempt at this. Th- this looks like the constellation Virgo, but Virgo is being depicted as pregnant. <laughs> and it's like a crayon drawing. Anyway, so you can find this over at William Tapley's 30 Eagle Books uh, YouTube channel. Just look for the shocking prophecy, what will happen, 9-23-17, and you'll see what I'm saying. But i got to warn you, if your curiosity gets the better of you and you want to go over there and see what it is that I'm laughing at, just remember, you can't unsee it. It's, it's so disturbing. <laughs> so shocking prophecy. A, a sign is going to happen, and it's all in Micah chapter 5. Okay. And this great sign is found in the book of Revelation. Oh, it's in Revelation, okay. And does not seem to tell us what will happen on that date. Right. Rather, he gives the date. That is the purpose, I believe, of the great sign. Uh, right. The the date the of the great sign, September 23rd, 2017. Okay. And one of the reasons I insist... I'm being recognized as the discoverer yeah. of this date of the great sign, which is the truth, is because it also gives credence to my interpretation of the great sign, especially of the prophecies as found here in Micah chapter number 5. And one of the things the false prophecies are saying is that this date of September 23rd will be the date for the rapture. Okay, so apparently there's a new rapture date set for September 23rd, but that's not what's going to happen. The pregnant Virgo is going to give birth to Donald Trump. I... That goes against everything Jesus said about the rapture. He said he will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it's going to be a huge surprise. He will come like a bridegroom for the bride at midnight. He says that both the wise and the foolish virgins are asleep. They are surprised. In fact, the whole Hebrew marriage custom, in which the bride and the groom got married, but then they separated, and the bride never knew when the groom was going to arrive and take her to their home. And in fact, I suggest that if you consider this to be the date for the rapture, 
you are one of those who will not be raptured. And I don't claim to know everything about these end times. Yeah, the, the, the co-prophet of the end times has spoken. If you believe September 23rd, 2017 is the date of the rapture, which makes no sense, um, then you're not even going to be raptured. I mean, whoa, whoa, man, whoa. I was surprised when others suggested that Isaiah 45 is about Donald Trump. But when I do make a discovery, I am sure the Lord revealed this date to me in order to verify, as I say, my interpretation. Right, yeah, his interpretation. So what does Micah say will happen on this date? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, because all the biblical scholars, they've been debating for, you know, centuries, millennia. What's going to happen on September 23rd, 2017? Because, you know, the great Micah prophecy, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, we know from previous programs that this is the day that Donald Trump will convert to Catholicism. Right. Because of the pregnant Virgo thingy. Got it. Number two, we know that his brethren will convert to Catholicism. So... Donald Trump's going to become a Roman Catholic. Date. And we're going to find out today that Micah says that the cities of Israel will be destroyed on this date. All right. So Israel, your cities are gone, and Donald Trump's a Roman Catholic, September 23rd, 2017. I don't know what Jim Baker is going to do. I mean, with all those cities destroyed. And Larry Huck, I mean, man, their ministries are going to be kaput. Um, so, okay, I, no one saw this come. This came right out of left field. And in order to understand that, we need to go look at the woman in the book of Revelation. Now, I have always said that this woman cannot be Israel because her seed have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But I've also always said that this woman has more than one manifestation. Now, certainly the woman whose seed have the testimony of Jesus Christ cannot be Israel because that must be the remnant of the Catholic Church. Nor can the woman who flees into the desert. Can that be Israel? Because the remnant of Judah flee into the mountains, as Jesus prophesies in the Olivet Discourse. Right, yeah. Nor can the woman who gives birth to the son who is destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron be Israel. That can only refer to Mary. Right, I mean, yeah. What? On earth? You know, I this, I, you, you know, you, again, I just don't understand why... William Tapley's children and grandchildren just don't show up at his house and say, time to take the video camera away from Grandpa. You've, you've been doing this long enough, and it's time for you to uh, find something productive to do with your time. Wow. Um, just what on earth? Okay, we're going <clears> to <throat> leave William Tapley there. So... The cities of Israel kaput on September 23rd, 2017. Donald Trump and his kindred, all Roman Catholics, on September 23rd, 2017. Who knew? All right. Time for a prophetic holy orders. 
Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update. Here we go. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the chairman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roly bowl a ball. Roll a bowl of ball, sing and roll a bowl of ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. So uh, we're going to be uh, checking in with uh, Ryan Lestrange. My apologies on getting this out to you late. Um, the uh, the Monday word, well, I'll let him explain. Here's Ryan Lestrange. I, I hope this hasn't messed up your week. Here we go. Ryan Lestrange, today's Monday word, it's a prophetic word today. The Lord gave me this statement, governors of the glory. I believe the Lord is raising up governors of the glory, people that are called to release the kingdom. To sh- people called to release the kingdom, the governors of the glory. Okay, so you, you sure God is the one who gave you that word? Okay regions to shake territories to shake their family to shake their business to shake their school he's raising up people that will manifest the kingdom that will release the glory it's time to release the person of jesus it's time to release the weight of heaven i hear the lord so jesus hasn't been released yet i wow i mean (laughs) whoa um that wow this is quite the revelation i mean so it's time to release Jesus. Has he been in prison? I mean, I seem to remember, you know, he was crucified, yeah, um, died, indeed. And, you know, they put him in a tomb, you know, and on the third day he rose again from the grave. Yeah, so, um, wow. Um, hmm. So, but... I would assume then, since, you know, he rose bodily from the grave, that he's already been released. I mean, huh. So the governors of the glory, in the, which is a word that God gave you, um, they're going to, it's time for Jesus to be released. Okay, let me, let me back this up a little bit here and make sure I, I heard this correctly. Up people that will manifest the kingdom, that will release the glory. It's time to release the person of Jesus. It's time to release the weight of heaven. I hear the Lord saying that it's time for the kingdom to come crashing down. That's what we. Well, that could be misconstrued. I mean, so you're prophesying that the kingdom of God is going to come crashing down? I mean, that doesn't sound positive. Are you sure this is from the Holy Spirit? I mean, that sounds like something that the devil would prophesy <laughs> the kingdom of god is going to come crashing down <laughs> yeah yeah but that sounds like something the devil would say <laughs> again i in my my deepest apologies for not getting this out sooner i i know it's friday i get it i get it i should have got this out monday i don't know what i was thinking i mean I, so many of you 
you know, your whole weeks are organized around these prophetic words and and you didn't even know it was time to release the person of Jesus. Yeah, and that the kingdom of God's coming crashing down. I okay, we continue. It's the full manifestation of the kingdom crashing down. And when the Lord <laughs> This doesn't sound positive. Again, to speak this word to me, I looked up the definition of the word governor. It means one that governs. One Did you look it up in the Greek or the Hebrew? I, I'm a little confused here. Exercises authority. Yeah. What did Jesus say? He said, whatever you bind on earth in Matthew shall be bound in him and govern the territory you're in. I yeah, no, actually, that's not correct. See, the, the, you know, I know those passages, you know, in like, you know, Matthew 16, you know, whatever you buy, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That has to deal with the doctrine called the office of the keys. Yeah, and if you want to do a little more research on that, then you go to, uh, you know, maybe like bookofconcord.org. Yeah, the, the uh, Lutherans actually understand, you know, this concept of the office of the keys. It's in the book of Concord. You could look it up. Um, it, it's talking about the forgiveness of sins. That's actually what it's talking about. And so he added something to those texts. None of the texts say, you know, what he said. Let me back this up again. I mean, this guy, I'm just wondering if, if this is really from God. It doesn't sound like it is. But, I mean, <clears throat> we continue. On earth in Matthew shall be bound in him and govern the territory you're in. I yeah, no, Jesus never said anything about governing the territory you're in. You just added that to the word of God. Yeah, that's not in the Bible. I believe it's time to quit praying like a pauper. To quit yeah, whatever. Stop praying like a poor pauper person. You know, you got to pop those pauper prayers. And, and what, what are we supposed to be doing instead? Hang on a second. Let me back this up. Boy, you're in. I believe it's time to quit praying like a pauper. Yeah. To quit saying, oh, God, please do it. And it's time to start decreeing and declaring governors release decrees. The so no longer are we to pray things like, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So you don't want us to do that anymore. You don't want, so God doesn't want us to pray. That's a pauper prayer. And oh, and you know, when Jesus was in the garden, you know, and he says, if let this cup pass from me but not my will, but your will be done. That's a pauper prayer, right? So God's now releasing governors of the glory, then they, they don't pray. So it's like, so rather than saying to God, give us this day our daily bread, which is a petition, uh, a prayer to God in the truest sense, we're supposed to decree and declare. So I decree and declare my daily bread. Now, where is it? I, but I've decreed and declared my daily bread, God. So bring it on. You know, I decree and declare, uh -huh, that doesn't sound right. You sure you got this from God, Ryan? I, it, I'm thinking you may have got your lines crossed and you accidentally called, you know, downstairs where, you know, it's hot and stuff. I believe it's time to quit praying like a pauper, to quit saying, oh, God, please do it. And it's time to start decreeing and declaring governors release decrees. The Lord is saying it's time to release the decree. It's time to release the authority. He's raising up governors of the glory, one that exercises authority, an official elected or appointed to act as a ruler. There's a ruling spirit. The government of God wants to be released and manifest in the earth. When the, the government of God wants to be released 
I mean, what kind of God is this? His kingdom's going to come crashing down. <laughs> His kingdom wants to be released. So there's the Holy Spirit up in heaven. And, uh, you know, I, being the Holy Spirit's really tough because, you know, I mean, I people would think that I have power and stuff, but I don't really have any power, you know. And so the kingdom of God, you know, I, I really want it to be released, but... Um, I, I need Ryan to fire up his video camera and kind of do one of those fancy YouTube videos so that he can let everybody know that they need to, you know, behave like governors so that they can decree and declare the releasing of the kingdom because it really wants to be released, but I totally powerless. I have no ability whatsoever, you know, to like release the kingdom myself. So I, I need governors to do it. Thank you, Ryan, for stepping in for me and helping us in this sense. Government of God crashes down on cancer, cancer bowels. When the government of God crashes down on bondages, deliverance comes. When the were you swatting flies? What was that? Government of God crashes yeah. down on families. The family is redeemed and rescued. I so when the God crashes down on a family, they're redeemed rather than destroyed. Who knew? Okay, all right. So this is like you know, it's a good kind of crash. I cannot believe that there are actually people who really do organize their weeks around these Monday prophetic words, you know. Family's being transformed by the government of God, and the Lord's inviting you yeah. as a child to be a governor of the glory. Uh, okay, so it's, I can't wait to get my invitation in the mail. You, know, you are cordially invited by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to be a governor, to release the kingdom that wants to be released but can't be released on its own because, you know, I'm... Holy Spirit's not powerful enough to do that. Act as one appointed yeah. to release the kingdom, yeah. to release his presence. Yeah. It means uh, it, it means the, the ruling manager or director. Yeah. You've been authorized to represent the kingdom of heaven. And I hear in my spirit the Lord saying that the government of God is coming in this hour. It's coming to crash down on the broken systems of men. It's... Well, I mean, wouldn't the, if God's government thingy crashed down on a broken system of men, wouldn't all of that be all broken together? <sighs> this is just so weird. Coming to shake the body of Christ. Yeah. It's coming to revive cities and nations. I believe By crashing on them, it's going to revive them. It's the revival crash thingy from the kingdom that wants to be released, but needs the governors to decree and declare the releasing. Cities and nations are going to be shaken yeah. by the government of God. It's coming to release signs and wonders in the glory of God. It's coming to raise the dead and heal the sick. I don't even believe we've begun to tap into the realms God wants to manifest. No, we, we haven't even started yet. I believe this government is a weighty thing. Now we see... Weighty, weighty. It's, a, it's very heavy. In 2 Chronicles 5, the picture of the glory of God showing up in the Old Testament said the priests came forth with the singers and they were dressed in their linen. They began to sing in 2 Chronicles 5. And there was unity and the trumpeters and the singers were making themselves heard with one voice. The Lord is doing something. He's raising these revival tribes that are speaking. The <laughs> He's raising revival tribes? What's that? Anyway, yeah, just, I, I, you know, again, my apologies. I, I've got to really dedicate myself 
at some time in the future to really getting these out <laughs> more timely fashion. Because I know you you just are depending on these really important prophetic words to know how to organize your life and stuff. Oh, man. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Vonda, the nagging prophetess, and also with the Joseph Prince. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. children, and welcome to this week's Max Holiday's How-To Audio Update. I'm your host, Peter Braithwaite, and today's topic is How to Hug a Vampire. Demonstrating How to Hug a Vampire today will be performed by Dr. D.P. Gumby. Step 1. Find a Vampire. This is by far the hardest step, and be sure to get your parents' permission before starting. Oh, look! A vampire! Step 2. Warmly greet the vampire from a distance. Hello, Mr. Vampire! Step 3. Approach the vampire. I'm coming your way, Mr. Vampire! Step 4. Attempt to hug the vampire. Come here and give me a squinch! Step 5. Have a relative call. A funeral director. Oh, no! I'm dying! Oh! Oh! There's so much blood! Oh! Step six. If you're reading this step, then you obviously didn't attempt step five. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. 
And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the people trying to give you fresh revelation from God, that it's not from God, and it's not fresh either. I don't know what it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, by the way, is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right let's kind of reset our prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate here we go so i was having this wedding and and we have we well, we didn't have, we had Shabbat. Mm, Shabbat Sunday. Yeah, 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 Shabbat. Oh. <laughs> Shabbat. Shabbat. Wow, Shabbat Sunday. Headless, headless, toothless devil. So much mice keep That's right. Prophetic Holy Orders. Uh, that's uh, Heidi Baker. Oh, that sermon from yesterday. Oh, man, that was just awful. So we're heading over to God's Girl TV YouTube channel uh, where Vonda, the nagging prophetess, uh, holds court. And we're, we're going to check in with the latest fresh revelation hot off the press. I mean, from the woman who called it, said last year on September 10th, 2016, the Republican Party would dump Donald Trump and he would not even be the Republican nominee. 
but that Jeb Bush would be the Republican nominee. And uh, we all know how that happened. And of course, you know, she also said that he wouldn't even be inaugurated. And he has. Um, so she's got the uh, prophetic batting average like way up there, like like a National League bullpen pitcher. I'm just saying here's <laughs> the latest. You know, I mean, one of these times she's going to get it right. Um, pro- prophecies from Vonda Brewer. Here we go. Everyone, Vonda here. You're watching God News. It's good to be with you. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for asking. Hope you're doing good. Um, I have some God news to share with you. And- I'm sure you do, but I'm pretty sure it's not God news. Um, let's see here. Today's- oh, um, let's see here. Yeah, huh March the 7th. It's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a Tuesday. And I guess it was about two weeks ago, maybe a week ago. It was about two weeks ago. The Holy Spirit... Um, laid uh gave me several visions and they really surprised me and i think they're gonna yeah yeah that's shocking i'm sure right yeah because we all know that yeah when you say thus saith the lord whoa things don't happen yeah surprise you too and um let me just share a little bit most of you know out there that um god has given me starting january 4th of 2016 all through um, the beginning of that uh, year, the Holy Spirit gave me a lot of prophecies about North Korea. Uh, right, yeah. And, you know, dumping Trump and stuff like that. Yeah. Bombing us. And um, as we know, their missile... You might want to contact Jim Baker. Von de Brewer said that uh, North Korea is going to bomb us. So, yeah, you, you're going to need food buckets to survive. ...program. Um, has grown. I didn't know that that was going to happen. I just prophesied what I prophesied by faith in God that he knew what was going to happen. And their missile program has grown uh, now. I think during the um, uh, late summer, they were known as a threat to be able to have capabilities of getting a bomb over to the West Coast uh, waters. And supposedly um, this past weekend when they did four or five uh, ballistic missiles test. They supposedly um, have even larger capabilities. And before Obama left office, he sent a um, highly developed radar over to the oceans somewhere around there to uh, monitor them even more closely. And so we've seen that uh, threat, those capabilities um, on the rise and being confirmed in the news. And so um, I knew that when God was showing me those visions that he kept having Obama in office when, uh, as if he was the person dealing with Kim Jong-un. So are you ready for the third term of uh, the president Barack Obama. I don't think that's how the constitution works, Vonda. And so um, I prophesied that it would be while Obama was in office. Now, little did I know that after Trump took office that... So this sounds like you're trying to do spin control on yet another failed prophecy. (laughs) That's what this sounds like to me. I mean... 
I I see her prophetic batting average going even lower. God gave me the revelation that Obama would be sworn back in. And um, I'm not going to repeat that whole revelation. It's on another video. You can go look for it. On its Yeah, are you sure that was from God? General release. But... So I see Obama being sworn back in, in a vision, and um, that says to me, I don't know how it's going to happen. At the time, I didn't know when it was going to happen or how it was going to happen. I'm sure it'll happen right after the Republican Party dumps Trump so that he can't even be elected or inaugurated president of the United States. But it gave me some more light as to, oh, this is how Obama could be dealing with it if he's the one that's sworn back in. Now, I'm not going to tell the whole story. God gives a lot of revelation in between, and there are many videos um, that God has given from the time that he showed me Obama being sworn back in up until now. So God News is kind of like a uh, a daily um uh, or weekly revelation. You have to follow along, kind of like a soap opera, or you don't know what's going on. So, um, anyway. A prophetic soap opera, so that you know what's going on. I mean, here's the deal. If I tuned in every week to catch up on the latest episode of Vonda Brewer's prophetic soap opera, I would have no clue what's going on in the world. <laughs> Because she's utterly blind, hapless. I mean, she can't even bunt to get on base. It's that bad. So now that I have the revelation from the Holy Spirit that Obama is going to be sworn back in, that tells me, okay, I could see how Obama would be dealing with Kim Jong-un during the time that we go through this uh, crisis, this tragedy, this America's judgment uh, with him, um, Kim Jong-un and Obama in the mix. Okay? Yeah. So I knew all of that, and God had shown me much, and this is when God decided to speak. I never asked God about the date that Obama would be sworn in. I just estimated Right. I thought, well, God, if you laid this particular month on my heart, um, he showed me that a lot of things that I've been prophesying uh, would come to pass uh, in April. He didn't say April of 2017. He didn't say April of 2018. He didn't say April 2019. He just laid on my heart that April would be a month that a lot of things that I spoke came to pass. And So there's an April coming. We don't know which April. In fact, we don't even know if it's a month. It could be a female April. When April, during a, an upcoming April thing, uh, Barack Obama, re, you know, third term as president of the United States, despite what the Constitution says, and um, Kim Jong, you know, whatever his face is over there in North Korea is going to bomb us and and Obama, during his third term as president of the United States, is going to be the guy to, to solve the, the problem. Okay. He showed me, I, uh, last summer I did a, a video of everything that had been prophesied. And some of the things that had come true, like um, uh, Hillary um, being the Democratic nominee, uh, you know, and some things like that, 
some things with Marco Rubio, some things with Trump's mouth going south. And so I went ahead and. Yeah, you're conveniently leaving out the whole dump Trump thing that didn't take place. Okay, Lord, you know, you've laid April on my heart as a lot of these prophecies. He gave me a vision of that, just that page that I had prophesied and kept up with a lot of things. Now, when things were fulfilled, I put it in red, fulfilled, red, fulfilled. And there was... Yeah, what about all that stuff that was like totally botched it, didn't fulfill it? Yeah, you know, Scripture in Deuteronomy 18 makes it clear that uh, the person who speaks presumptuously in the name of the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't come to pass that um, they're a false prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the batting average you've got to have, according to Deuteronomy 18 as a prophet, uh, you have to have a perfect batting average, 1,000, not 200, 1,000. She doesn't even come close, like not even close at all. All right, moving along, time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Let's do this. Don't want no loving, don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El Dinero, wanna be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of loot. And whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like me, just like King Midas. Want that golden touch, is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right, so we're uh, heading over to the television studio of Joseph Prince, where he's going to explain to us. The secret of Moses' youthfulness. Now, if you're thinking, this, well, okay, I seem to recall in Scripture something about Moses being an older fellow, but that somehow he, you know, didn't really age much. Yeah, it's it's in Scripture, but uh, it doesn't explain what the secret is. And uh, Joseph Prince, he's had a a direct conversation with God, and he asked God straight up. How is it that Moses is able to have this youthfulness? You know, what is the secret? And God told him the secret. So you're about to receive information that's not in the Bible, given by direct conversation revelation to the televangelist Joseph Prince. And, And this is, oh, such a relevant secret, too. Because, I mean, I'm sure you can apply this to your life. And you might want to send a seed offering into Joseph Prince, just in case, you know, because that might be required in order to apply the secret of youthfulness to you. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Here's Joseph Smith to, not Joseph Smith, Joseph Prince to explain. Here we go. God's people, you find that God's people are divinely energized to fulfill God's work. Right, yeah. Are, Are you feeling divinely energized to fulfill God's work? Amen. To fulfill their call. Uh-huh. Do you have a biblical text that actually teaches that? You know, God, does, God really does not want his people tired or chronically fatigued. 
he doesn't. So if I'm tired or chronically fatigued, maybe suffering from a, a chronic illness, you know, maybe like MS or something, am I sinning against God and doing something contrary to his will? And especially when you are tired at the wrong time. Right. So if you need a nap in the afternoon, God does not want this. So no napping. N- no, no, no. You, you stay awake. For example, the word is going forth and you are in deep coma. <laughs> Amen. That's the wrong time. Or when you're serving the Lord or time with your family and you're just tired. And you can be young and perpetually tired. God does not want that. God wants- yeah, you need, to, you need to knock that off. You're clearly doing something different than what God wants. Is, is, so do people go to hell for this? I'm curious. God wants you to be divinely energized. Right, yeah. Right, because don't you think if God wants me to be divinely energized that he would just divinely energize me? You know, why is it my responsibility to make sure I'm divinely energized? Like the burning bush, burning up, but not burning out. Right, so I I, see, I I totally miss that application when it comes to the burning bush. I mean, (laughs) you know. Here, I hear I've been working my way through the book of Exodus. Yeah, I've been rambling my way through. And I totally miss that part about how there's a principle, you know. See the burning bush? You know, it was burning, but it didn't burn up. And so, therefore, this is a principle. You, too, like the burning bush, you need to be burning, but not burning up. You need to be divinely energized. So, go. You do it. Go. Start now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I seem to be at a loss. Okay, so this is God's will for me. Um, how do I go about divinely energizing so that I can do what God wants me to do and not upset him because I'm not being divinely energized? Amen? No, I can't say amen to this. So today we're going to look at the secret of Moses. Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, the Bible says Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Amen. So when he died, he died in divine strength and youthfulness. Moses was 120 years old, yet he was strong. He did not die because of sickness. He did not die because of disease. And there's always someone who say, well, Pastor Prince, if you don't die because of sickness, how do you die? You just give up the ghost. I'll give up the spirit. Amen. So, what's the secret of Moses? How come he lived to a good old... <laughs> I, he, it sounds like he's having a tough guy, time getting an amen, even from the people there. I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm being browbeaten for something I don't have a lot of control over here. Um, okay, so, uh, so, I mean, so the way, if you have divine youth... The way you die is you just give up the ghost. So, you know, and so, yeah, it's, so there you are, you know, 120 years old. And you say, oh, you know, I've been divinely energized, you know, ever since I was 40. And so I'm just going to, you know, next Thursday, uh, yeah, next Thursday at 2 o'clock, I'm just going to give up the ghost because, uh, yeah, it's time, you know. I, I, I Oh, but I feel great. Uh-huh. This is weird. Good old age, and the Bible mentioned specifically his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So I asked the Lord. The best person to ask is the Lord. He wrote the book. Yeah. So I asked the Lord. I said, Lord, yeah. tell me the secret of Moses. Yeah. What, what is the secret? Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a look at that text. 
Um, uh, so we'll start Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, see if we can grab some context, see if we can make any sense of this. So Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all of the land, Gilead, as far as Dan and Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain that is in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, and you shall not go over there. So, yeah, because remember, he struck the rock a second time when God told him to speak to it. Yeah, that didn't work out so well for him. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Yeah, see, he died because the word of the Lord said he would die. It doesn't say anything about him just, you know, giving up the ghost because, you know, um, and he, God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, and then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Yeah, see, there's nothing in the text here that even hints at that there was some kind of secret here. I'm pretty sure the reason why Moses, 120 years old, didn't have his eyes dimmed is kind of similar to the way Joshua, you know, talked about the fact, uh, or Caleb talked about the fact that, you know, even though he was one of the spies who went to spy out Canaan, he believed the Lord and that the Lord kept him youthful, that, you know, when he went into Israel, he... And Joshua and even Moses, I mean, they these guys didn't age because God made it so that they wouldn't because they believed while everyone else, they got old and died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So, okay, but, uh, you know, there really is no text that gives us the secret. But, hey, Joseph Prince, I mean, he and God are tight. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, clearly he has Starbucks with Jesus on a regular basis. And, you know, and while he's having his weekly Starbucks meeting with Jesus, he can ask him questions like, hey, you know, uh, Jesus got a question for you. And Jesus said, go ahead, shoot, Joseph, go ahead, tell us, wait, what's your question? He says, well, you know how it says in, you know, in Deuteronomy 34 that Moses' eyes weren't dim and that he, he all had all his vim and vigor, even at 120. So what was his secret? And Jesus said, I'm glad you asked, you know, because I know it's not there in the Bible, but... I'm going to tell you, Joseph, and you can go ahead and just preach this and let everybody know that this is the missing part of their Bible. That they, they in fact, you can just throw this into the back of the Bible. We'll call this um, the uh, the Word of the Lord according to the prophet Joseph Prince. Yeah, this is extra information not found in your Bible. Nope, nope. You can only get this through the prophet Joseph Prince. So we continue. And the Lord said. For additional tape copies, please write a lot to me. It's in that verse. So I read that verse again. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural. I said, I don't see it. He says, you don't see it. It's in that verse. His eyes, that's why you don't see it. His eyes were not dim. Now I know for a fact that when he talks about Moses here, he's talking about his physical eyes not being dim. But you know something? And the Lord gave me this uh, verse immediately. He quoted this verse in my spirit. Oh, he did. Yeah. See, eyes not being dimmed. I mean, have you ever, you know, man, I'm, I'm going to date myself here. 
Do y'all remember um, the uh, television show Kung Fu? Yeah, um, there was a Kung Fu master whose eyes were dimmed. Yeah, and he was blind. And and you think of, uh, you know, was it Hophni and Phinehas' father, Eli? Yeah, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, his eyes were dimmed. And he couldn't see, you know, because, you know, this happened to him as a result of his old age. Yeah, that's what that means there. All right, let's go right to Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months. All right, because his parents saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. Notice that he knew about Christ. Moses knew about Christ. Do you know? Yeah, I, I'm fully aware of that. The Hebrews 11 is spectacular in telling us who's behind the scenes working there in Exodus. It's Christ himself. And that, that's a wonderful part. But that doesn't actually tell us the secret of Moses's, you know, youthfulness, you know. You know that Moses was the, uh, the secretary for the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. Amen. And the first five books is full of Jesus. It is, yes. It's full of Christ. And the Bible says that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. He knew. Now, he doesn't know the, to the fullest extent that you and I know. Amen. But he knew that everything in the scripture is pointing to Christ. Right? Yeah, right, yeah. Now, watch this next verse. This is the verse that God quote, uh, was quoting in my spirit. But okay, so this is the verse that God put in his spirit. I, I thought God put it in the Bible, but... I mean, clearly I was wrong. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Right. So, so because Moses was able to see him who's invisible, that was the secret to his youthfulness. So all I got to do is see the one who's invisible, and then I can be youthful too all the way to 120? His secret was that he saw him... In everything. Um, that's not quite what that text said. Um, why do I feel like, yeah, you know, you ever have that feeling like when you've been, you know, around somebody who's kind of slippery, you know, kind of snaky, um, you know, dodgy character, you know, maybe you shook their hand and afterwards you kind of felt like greasy and oily. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling that way right now, you know, listening to this. I'm kind of feeling like there's some kind of weird greasy stinky residue you know Ugh. moses saw him who is invisible but you say pastor prince it says he endured now that's very interesting and and because the lord quoted this verse to me I began oh yeah yeah of course i mean duh yes what was i thinking god quoted this verse to the the prophet joseph prince right begin to study this entire verse and i found out that the greek word for endured appears only in this verse in the entire new testament there you go say so there's the secret it's it's the word endure it appears only here but i know that for a fact that there are many verses on the word endure endurance in, in the greek throughout the entire new testament but for this word endure it appears only once once is the word karterio K-R-T-E-R-E-O, for those who are... Right! Duh! I, oh, if only I had seen... seen what, what is he talking about? Who are taking down notes. Carterio. He appears only once. And it's not endure. It's actually the word, he became strong supernaturally. He became strong supernaturally. It appears only here. 
Amen. I, 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 I'm thinking why they translate as endure. Because the word endure is a different word in the Greek. So Moses became strong. How? You know, I, I read Greek. Yeah, I actually have a degree in uh, biblical languages. And, you know, I, let's check, you know, like a good lexicon here, like B-Day. Cartereo. Uh, here, here, here's the word right here. And uh, it means um, to continue without wavering in a state or condition, to be strong, steadfast, hold out. To endure? Well, it, it looks like the reason why um, they translate Cartereo as um, endure is because that's actually what it means. Yeah, I, I, I know that sounds profound, but uh, I think that's the reason why. By seeing Jesus who is invisible. The Bible is for you to see. Uh, right, yeah, it's for me to see, right, yeah. And that's the secret to being youthful. Not for you to do. Amen. For when you see, the do will take care of itself. It's called fruit. Amen. Amen. And we are transformed by beholding. You know, uh, when, when Peter saw Jesus. Right, yeah. So we're transformed by beholding. So get beholding, you know. Jesus above the storm. Peter effortlessly, without human effort, without human strength, became like Jesus above the storm. He also walked on the water as long as his eyes was on Jesus. But the moment his eyes was taken off the Lord, he, he no longer saw him the way Moses saw him. He took his eyes and put his eyes on the storm. He began to sink. Listen carefully. You don't have to ask just by looking at Jesus, how does this happen? That's not your part. That's the part of the Holy Spirit to make it happen. Your part is to see. Right, yeah. So get to seeing and then you can be youthful like Moses too. Right, yeah. Um, wow, that's... <laughs> just like awful. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. I mean, what's the point of going on at this point? I mean, people there are not actually hearing God's word rightly taught in any kind of meaningful way at all. And what they're being told is just utter nonsense and gobbledygook. I mean, that's really what we're dealing with here. All right, we're going to just pause right there. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end the week off with a good, good sermon lecture from uh, Bill Johnson. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, 
Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith. End the week off with a good one. Or my brain explodes. How is it that these people who have no skill in rightly handling God's word are... Uh, you get what I'm saying. But let's end the week with somebody who is skilled with God's word. Bum 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 The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is also a lecture comes to us from the Shepherds Conference, Phil Johnson presiding, and it's a look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, no other gospel, the true gospel of Christ, and all I gotta say is, it's great, it's fantastic actually, so um, I, I can't give it enough superlatives. It's just an example of good exegetical work, good cross-reference work, proper distinction of long gospel, and the willingness to say the truth about, well, false gospels, how they actually don't save. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. Without any further ado, here's Phil Johnson and his lecture, No Other Gospel, The True Gospel of Christ. For these plenary sessions, never before have they assigned me what to speak. They always let me choose. But this year, the powers that be gave me a specific text and topic for this message. The title they gave me is No Other Gospel. And the text they've assigned me is Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. I couldn't be happier with that choice. This is a vital text with a profound set of practical implications and lessons that are, I think, especially applicable for our generation. Verses 
6 through 10 in, in the first chapter of Galatians are too often glossed over or ignored, but it's, this is an extremely important passage, and it's worthy of our special attention. So turn with me to Galatians 1, and let's look at those two verses, verses 6 and 7, and their context. You are aware, I'm sure, that this epistle was written to a group of churches. Galatia wasn't a city like Corinth or Philippi. It was a region that, was den- that, that dominated the uh, central plateau in the Turkish peninsula, Asia Minor. And Paul's first missionary journey took him through that region in Acts 13 and 14. There's a, quite a detailed description of his ministry there. The places uh, where he preached on that first missionary journey included places like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Pisidian Antioch, and those were all Galatian cities. And Paul went back through those same cities again on his, <clears throat> on his second and third missionary journeys. And so he obviously had a very close personal attachment to these churches and an obvious fondness for the people there. These were churches he founded early in his ministry, and they were filled with people who first heard the gospel from Paul himself. He was their spiritual father. And so our text is understandably full of passion, but the mood is not exactly warm and friendly. From the opening verses, Paul writes here with an abrupt tone that sets this letter apart. It it sounds a little bit like an indignant father scolding his children. Look at it, verses starting at verse 6. He writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is writing to confront this threat from some false teachers who were stalking him wherever he planted churches. Of course, Paul, a born and bred Pharisee who hated and persecuted Christians before his conversion, was suddenly and dramatically converted and given a commission from Christ to, of all things, take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he planted churches and filled them with Gentile converts out of pagan cultures. But then when he would move from one city to start a church in another place, these false teachers would come in after he left and tell the Gentile believers that if they wanted to be real Christians, they first needed to become proselytes to Judaism. That was the gist of their error. They insisted that believers are required to follow the Old Testament ceremonial law, starting, of course, with circumcision. And that flatly contradicted what Paul had preached to the Galatians, because Paul always stressed the fact that faith is the only instrument of justification. Romans 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And Paul's taught that, that no good work, least of all circumcision, is a prerequisite to justification. And Paul is very specific about this too. In Romans 4, verses 9 through 11, he goes back to Genesis and traces the chronology from Genesis 15 to 17, showing that Abraham was declared righteous several years before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had 
by faith. That's verse 11 of Romans 4. But these false teachers were saying, no, no, Paul is only giving you part of the message. Faith is important, sure, but works demanded by the law are also necessary before you can be justified. Now, Acts 15 describes this same false doctrine, and there we learn that the men behind this heresy were some Pharisees who professed faith in Christ. Acts 15, verse 5, refers to them as some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So these guys had dragged their Pharisaical legalism into the church. Acts 15, 1 says, They were teaching the Gentile brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this became a pervasive error. You know, it's, it's very much like some of the Hebrew roots cults of today. They were insistent that true Christianity must be thoroughly Jewish. And so we often call these guys Judaizers. Paul usually called them the circumcision party. And sometimes he called them worse names than that. In Philippians 3, which is one of Paul's later epistles, he calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. And furthermore, Paul says their version of the gospel was not really a gospel at all. The Greek text in our verses, verses 6 and 7, uses actually two different words that can be translated another. And in fact, in the King James Version, they're both translated that way. The phrase is another gospel, which is not another. And the first another is the word heteros in Greek, meaning another of a different kind. The second another is alos, which, which is the word you would use if you meant another one of the same kind. You know, give me another one of those altoids. That sort of, that's alos. Heteros means it's totally another one, a different kind. And so what Paul is saying here is that the, the uh, Galatians were flirting with a whole different kind of gospel, and it was not a legitimate alternative to the true gospel. There is no other gospel. That's the name of this passage, the theme of this passage, and the name of the topic I was assigned, no other gospel. And Paul makes that point with supreme vigor, using the most severe language he can righteously summon. He punctuates it with a double curse, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats himself immediately for emphasis. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Anathema. And that double curse is, I, I think, the strongest language Paul ever used anywhere. And it comes at the beginning of an epistle that is filled with strong words. In Galatians 5.12, for example, he suggests that, you know, if circumcision can make a person righteous, these guys should just go ahead and cut off their manhood completely. That's harsh. But if you think about it, these two verses in chapter 1 are even harsher than that because he says these guys deserve eternal damnation. And by the way, the immediate repetition of a curse like that was the Koine Greek equivalent of retweeting something in all caps. <laughs> now, don't pass over these maledictions without considering what we ought to learn from them. There's just no legitimate way to soften what Paul says here. 
This is inspired scripture, and so you can't brush it aside as an accidental overstatement. These curses are as God-breathed as any other text of Scripture, and they are meant to show us what a profound evil it is to go beyond what is written and redesign the gospel to suit our own tastes and prejudices. These false teachers in Galatia were also probably former Pharisees and therefore possibly even colleagues of Paul's, men who maybe he even knew personally. They had supposedly professed faith in Christ, But Paul does not try to make nice with them. He doesn't show them any kind of artificial academic deference. He doesn't feign congeniality. He doesn't invite them to an amiable dialogue. He doesn't even challenge them to a debate. In fact, he doesn't write to them at all. He doesn't write to them personally before he criticizes them. He simply brushes them off as utter heretics And he instructs the Galatians to have nothing to do with them. Let them be accursed. And he says, in other words, that we're not to accept anyone who comes promoting a different gospel, no matter who it is, even if it's an angel or an apostle. Now, that, of course, is pure hypothetical, used to make the point as emphatic as possible. No real angel and no real apostle would ever purposely promote a different gospel. But if they do, he says, let them be damned. He's using a level of polemical vilification that today's guardians of evangelical etiquette would probably try to tell us is totally out of place in any discussion of religious belief or biblical doctrine. You're not supposed to say such things. But here you see, it's not always right to be warm and welcoming. There are times when a curse is more appropriate than a blessing. Now, of course, it's it's not a good thing to be so fluent in imprecatory language that damning your adversaries becomes second nature. In fact, my advice is to avoid those self-appointed wardens of righteous precision who, who never do anything but curse and condemn other people. It's not a badge of honor to be a full-time contrarian. And if you are immediately inclined to call down fire from heaven on everyone with whom you have any kind of disagreement, that is not a godly trait. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And Paul said, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. He didn't say anything about punching back. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. And if you simply must be contrary, that's actually one of the best ways to do it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them, Scripture says. And that's what you do when you personally are the target of an adversary's attacks. But that wasn't the case here. The problem here was not some personal affront or indignity to Paul's ego. The gospel was under attack. This was a blatant assault against the kingdom of heaven. And when Paul says, verse 6, to the Galatians, you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, he's not speaking about himself. He's not saying you're deserting me. The phrase, him who called you, is a reference to God. God is the one who calls 
and draws believers through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Romans 8.30, those whom God predestined, he also called. And later in this same epistle to the Galatians, Galatians 5.7, Paul says, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. That's God, the one who calls you. He's the one who calls all of us into the grace of Christ. And by flirting with this alternative gospel, the Galatians had gone to the very brink of turning away from God, rebelling against God, turning to a different gospel. And so these purveyors of a false gospel weren't merely thorns of annoyance in Paul's flesh. They were turning people against the truth of Christ, and therefore they posed a serious threat to the churches of Galatia, and that's why Paul calls them damnable heretics not just because they irritated him. In other words, Paul is defending the message, not the messenger. Now, these false teachers were not openly hostile to Christ. They pretended to be preachers of the gospel, while systematically they were attacking the principle of divine grace that is the essential nucleus of gospel truth. They were teaching that the gospel is about what you must do for God rather than simply declaring what Christ has done for sinners. And it would have been positively sinful to bless the purveyors purveyors of such an upside-down message. It would be a sin even to ignore the danger that they posed. That's what Peter tried to do in Galatians 2, and Paul rebuked him publicly for it. In Titus 1, Paul mentions these same false teachers. There he calls them those of the circumcision party. That's how he usually talked about them. And he says this, their mouths must be stopped. That is not a politically correct statement in these postmodern times, is it? Incidentally, the Apostle John, whose nickname was the Apostle of Love, said something very similar to this. He said, we are not supposed to be amicable to people who have an agenda to undermine or attack the essential teachings of Christ. In 2 John, verses 9 through 11, he said, "...whosoever does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching," he said, "...do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, because whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." That sounds harsh to our postmodern ears too, doesn't it? And both of these apostles are telling us that the gospel is simple and specific, and anyone who tries to tweak it or twist it or tamper with it is committing a damnable sin. Protestants, I fear, have forgotten how forcefully the apostles stressed that truth. Worse than that, lots of so-called Protestants seem to have forgotten that there is actually only one gospel. 500 years into the Protestant Reformation, ecumenical relationships with Rome have never been more popular among Protestants than right now. But Rome has not budged one inch on the gospel since Luther's time. The Roman Catholic Church still categorically rejects the principle of sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's the Protestants who are the ones who have changed their stance on the gospel since the 1500s, and not for the better. If you doubt that, 
turn on any, almost any of the large global religious television networks and spend a few hours watching the various charlatans and religious quacks who traffic in false gospels. And that's all they do. They promise you divine favor and earthly prosperity or miraculous healing in return for your money. They are, in effect, selling indulgences. And there are hundreds more hucksters today than there ever were in Johann Tetzel's time. And most of them are, at least nominally, evangelical. The word evangelical is supposed to mean gospel-oriented, but what the televangelists are preaching today is the very definition of a different gospel, which, as Paul says here, is no gospel at all. And we ignore that at our peril. We desperately need a generation of men with the spirit of Luther and Calvin, true biblical scholars who are not reluctant to wage a vigorous polemical war against false gospels. That's never been needed more than it is today, even even just before the Reformation. It seems to be the prevailing attitude today that if you engage in a bare-knuckle fight against error the way Paul does here, you automatically sacrifice your scholarly credibility. That is an emasculated view of scholarship. The best scholars throughout church history have always been vigorous polemicists. The evangelical movement right now is overrun with false gospels, and the problem extends from the pages of Christianity today to the fancy theatrical platforms of countless megachurches. So there's never been a time when the church was more in need of clear, intelligent, articulate, uncompromising voices who are willing to speak candidly and defend the one true gospel the way Paul does here. Now, consider the context of our passage. Verse 6 is the first verse of this epistle's main body. Verses 1 through 5 are a greeting and a benediction. That was the standard form for a letter like this in the first century. And it's typical for the Apostle Paul to follow this pattern in pretty much all of his epistles. The first word in every one of the Pauline epistles is his name, Paul. And that sometimes is followed by uh, the names of fellow laborers who are traveling or working with him. And then you have the address, naming the person or the group of people he's writing to. And then he normally says something encouraging or complimentary to the church or the person he's writing to. That was his normal style. Even when he wrote to Corinth, that totally messed up congregation with a laundry list of problems, he had some words of praise for them. I mean, think about how disorganized and confused that church was. They had divided into warring factions. They had people filing lawsuits against one another. They were neglecting proper discipline, abusing their spiritual gifts, getting drunk at the Lord's table. They were doctrinally confused on several levels, struggling even with the basic concept of bodily resurrection. And ultimately, the Corinthians would be susceptible to heretics who came in like these guys did and tried to entice them away uh, from Paul's teaching and, and get them to rebel against Paul's authority. That was a church at Corinth. But despite the many problems Paul had to deal with in Corinth, barely four verses into that first epistle, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. 
He says that to that messed up church. That was normally Paul's practice. He liked to start with a word of praise or encouragement. In the, in the very first verse of Ephesians, he commends the people for their faithfulness. And even when he needed to deliver a rebuke or, or some correction, he would always try to start with some gracious words about the people that he was writing to. In fact, every one of his epistles follows that pattern except Galatians. And there's not a single word of approval or commendation from start to finish in the book of Galatians. Not even a hint of gratitude or joy. His greeting is followed immediately by a scolding, and instead of a blessing, he pronounces a curse. That's what makes our text electric. Rather than the normal, polite formalities, he jumps straight to the point, and it's a passionate rebuke. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And the rest of the epistle is just that candid. It's an urgent, heavily didactic reprimand without mincing words. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls the Galatians foolish. And he suggests that some evil agent may have put them under a spell. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Nine verses later, I am perplexed about you. And throughout the epistle, he, he, he is never merely insulting. It's not that. But he maintains that stern tone of voice. He never says anything that would blunt the force of what he has to say by way of rebuke. He's deeply and seriously troubled by their flirtation with a different gospel. And from start to finish, you can detect that passion in his voice. Now, one other notable characteristic of Paul's epistles is that his opening words always contain a statement of some core gospel truth or a summary of the gospel itself. And of course, he does that here because it's desperately needed. Verse 4 is a simple, concise statement of what the true gospel is about. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Anyone familiar with Paul's teaching can immediately see how pregnant with meaning those few words are. It comprises the whole principle of substitutionary atonement. Christ gave himself for our sins. And the point of his death was not to provide us with earthly and material prosperity, not merely to break down the walls of national boundaries and ethnic prejudice, not to redeem earthly art and culture, not to send a message about social justice, not to point us on a journey towards spiritual self-realization, and certainly not to give us a pattern of self-sacrifice so that we could atone for our own sins. He gave himself to make a full and final atonement for sin and thereby to deliver us from this present evil age, to deliver us from it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says this, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We heard that this morning. The gospel is not about you and me and what we must do. By making the message about circumcision, these false teachers were preaching themselves, not Christ. Paul's ministry was markedly different from that. He told the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ crucified, he said. Specifically, we proclaim the good news of our text, that he gave himself 
for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's the one true gospel in a single statement, and anyone who comes with a more sophisticated-sounding narrative than that is to be rejected. We're not supposed to engage them in friendly dialogue so that everybody can consider their point of view. That's not how you deal with people with false gospels. It's intriguing and significant that such serious heresy had crept into the church so early in the apostolic era. I'm always amazed by this. You can see it in Christ's letters to the church the churches in Revelation as well, how quickly heresy attacked and debilitated some churches. Even Paul is astonished that they were so quickly deserting the truth. Some people have the notion, you know, that the primitive church was totally pure and whatever was taught in the early church should automatically be be given special credence, total credence. But Scripture itself says that anything anyone teaches must be examined alongside the Scriptures to see if these things are so, even if the teacher is an angel or an apostle. That's what discernment demands. Now, sadly, the church in practically every generation of church history has failed to take the stance Paul takes here. And that failure explains why the visible church always needs reforming. There have always been professing Christians who join the church and identify with the people of God, but their faith is superficial. They don't really like the gospel message, and they think with a little tinkering, they can reimagine the gospel and remove the offense of the cross, as if we could fix the message so that Christ himself would not be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in the eyes of a hostile world. And in fact, there is something, I think, innate in the heart of fallen humanity that makes all sinners wish for a different kind of gospel, and Scripture recognizes that. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And verse 23, the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The carnal mind wants something less offensive, something more refined, something more dignified or more ritualistic. In fact, just two days ago on Twitter, a a well-known musician who professes to be a believer sent out a series of messages saying he finds the idea of blood atonement primitive and embarrassing. He said, and I'm quoting him, the idea that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. He said he thinks we should tell people instead that the cross shows us that the whole blood sacrifice idea is unnecessary. And again, I'm quoting him directly, that we should stop trying to get to God with violence. He wants to tone the gospel down, clean it up, get rid of what's disagreeable, and inject it with more noble-sounding religious principles. That's exactly what the circumcision party were trying to do. R.C. Sproul tells the story of how he was lecturing on the atonement one time, and someone in the audience yelled out, "'That's primitive and obscene!' And Sproul answered, you're exactly right. He said, I particularly like your choice of words, primitive and obscene. Take primitive. What kind of God would reveal his love and redemption in terms that are so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite core of professional scholars could understand them? God does speak in primitive terms because he's addressing himself to primitives. And then Sproul said this, Sproul... He's great, isn't he, Sproul? (laughs) 
Then he said this, if primitive is an appropriate word to describe the content of Scripture, obscene is even more so. What is more obscene than the cross? He said, here we have obscenity on a cosmic scale. On the cross, Christ takes upon himself human obscenities in order to redeem them. Paul said this same thing without flinching in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin. The accumulated guilt of every evil, obscene, or wicked deed ever committed by all the multitudes whom God will ever ultimately save, all of that was imputed to Christ. Spurgeon says this about that text, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What a grim picture that is, to conceive of sin gathered up into one mass, murder, lust, rape, adultery, and all manner of crime, all piled together in one hideous heap. Spurgeon says, we ourselves, brethren, impure though we are, could not bear this. How much less could God, with his pure and holy eyes, bear with that mass of sin, and yet there it is, and God looked upon Christ as if he were that mass of sin. There's no way to understand the cross correctly without seeing it as offensive. That means we cannot faithfully preach the gospel and avoid offending people. Paul's curse applies to anyone who tries. Now, I don't think the average gospel-corrupting heretic sets out deliberately to commit a damnable sin. Uh, Even these guys in Galatia, I, I think it's probably pretty rare and maybe almost even unheard of that someone joins the church with a premeditated plan to become a heretic. I think most false teachers are deceived before they become deceivers. They're self-deceived. They think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. They assume they can determine what's true or false by reason alone, or worse, by their feelings, even though Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. They actually believe they're doing a good thing by trying to fix whatever they find distasteful about the message of the cross. And I hope you won't think me unkind if I speak directly, but some of you here may very well be guilty of the sin Paul curses here. In an audience of 5,000 21st century preachers, it would be very unusual not to have some who claim that they've discovered a new perspective or, or, or refreshed the gospel for the millennial generation or, or invented some postmodern alternative to a message a message uh, that that sounds bad because they think blood atonement is too primitive or too offensive. Lots of people do that. Lots of people today in evangelical churches do that. You may think your motives are pure. You might have the same motives that probably drove the circumcision party to do what they did, namely trying to make the message more appealing to their audience. But don't miss the point of this text. Paul curses every effort to do that. And let me be really candid here in case I haven't stepped on enough toes already. There is a tendency in all of us to think we might be clever enough to be really winsome and influential so that we can figure out some ingenious way to minimize the offense of the cross without corrupting the gospel. 
I think most, if not all of us, have entertained thoughts like that. It's a desire we need to recognize as sinful and mortify it. And Paul was emphatic about that. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but to please God. And the way to do that, he told Timothy, is not to revise and embellish, but to guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, he says, some have swerved from the faith. That's 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Uh, And I've been watching the drift of this pragmatic, seeker-sensitive mania for four decades now. And here's a conclusion I've come to. We need to beware whenever someone, anyone, blithely insists that radical contextualization poses little or no danger, that it's possible, really, to be cool and culturally engaged and wildly popular and doctrinally sound all at once. People who have that philosophy always end up twisting or defanging the gospel, even if they insist they would never do that. If your aim is to be stylish in the eyes of worldly people and win people through your own popularity, you have already compromised the gospel. You're preaching yourself rather than Christ. And if if you think the impression you make on people is the key to winning them to Christ... You're guilty of preaching yourself rather than Christ Jesus as Lord. The gospel is deliberately unsophisticated. That's God's design. The gospel lands a death blow to human pride. Try to spice it up or tone it down, and you will inevitably corrupt it. In fact, according to 2 Corinthians 11.3, one of the main strategies of Satan is to draw us away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And there are three common desires that subtly draw people away from the faithful proclamation of unvarnished gospel truth. And Paul alludes to all three of them here. And I want to point them out to you from our text. If you've been waiting to take down an outline, here it is. The first is an itch for something new. An itch for something new. This is a malignant tendency that has afflicted the... American evangelical movement for at least 250 years. It is the reason today's evangelicals move from one fad to another with such breathtaking speed and ease. In fact, I know some of you have heard this from me before because I think I've made this same point in every Shepherds Conference for the past 15 years, but you need to hear it again. The people we minister to, and even some of us pastors, are far too easily corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Because there's such an incredible amount of pressure coming from within the church today, coming from people who insist that we cannot effectively reach our generation unless we follow the styles of popular culture. It's why so many pastors are exegeting movies rather than preaching the Word. But whatever is currently in fashion will soon go out of fashion. Not only has it become virtually impossible to stay up to speed with all the changing styles, we also know, don't we, from past experience, that today's fads will be the brunt of tomorrow's jokes. For decades, American evangelicals have blindly run after a seemingly endless parade of shallow fads. At one point, 
You know, everybody was reading fictional stories about territorial warfare with demons, this present darkness, and and all its sequels. And then you had the left-behind craze, and that started to die as soon as everybody started praying the prayer of Jabez. And that gave way to... That gave way to 40 Days of Purpose, followed by Mel Gibson's movie, followed by the emerging church movement, followed by hipster religion, and who knows what what else. I stopped following them after that, because the hipsters irritated me. (laughs) And today, we actually look back with contempt on almost everything that was once wildly popular and then fell fell out of fashion. No one who has any kind of influence is excited about the prayer of Jabez anymore. We make jokes about wild at heart. At least I hope you do. (laughs) Running after every new evangelical craze will not make you more relevant. It guarantees that eventually you're going to be totally irrelevant. In 1887... Spurgeon's friend and fellow pastor Robert Schindler wrote the first article that became the downgrade controversy, a series of articles that Spurgeon published. And in it, Schindler said this, In theology, that which is true is not new, and that which is new is not true. That's exactly right. If you accept the principle of sola scriptura, if you believe Scripture alone contains everything necessary for God's glory, man's salvation faith and life, and that nothing is to be added to what Scripture says, then you have to ignore, you have to acknowledge, you have to affirm the truth of that little aphorism. Anything new is not true, and and whatever's whatever's new is not true. Did I get it right? Anything true is not new, and anything new is not true. Whatever. You get the point. (laughs) But that's Paul's point about the gospel. Notice his words. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In verse 9, just before he gives this curse a second time, he says, as we have said before, so now I say again. He doesn't mean that he just said this in the previous verse. That's pretty obvious. He wouldn't need to say anything about that. He's reminding them that while he was with them in person, he had already warned them not to listen if anyone came teaching a different message. He'd already told them this. But the speed with which the Galatians turned away from Paul's clear, simple gospel in search of something new was breathtaking. And again, this is a common tendency. It requires firm determination to stay steadfast and unmovable. Someone who is not deeply anchored in the truth of God's Word will always risk being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and by the craftiness of Satan in his deceitful schemes. That's exactly what was happening to the Galatians. Something new had caught their fancy and lacking deep roots... They were easily swayed by the sheer novelty of it. And that same tendency is what you see on a global scale driving all of culture today in the church and in the world as well. We're like the people of Athens in Acts 17.21. People spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The Internet feeds us nonstop lists of what's currently trending, and that stokes 
this lust for novelty. The unchanging gospel is the antidote. There is only one true gospel, and it cannot be improved on. If someone tells you that we need to craft a new, more relevant message in order to reach the next generation, let him be damned. The Christian blogosphere right now is full of people who self-identify as evangelicals but have no firm commitment to the truth that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. They're enthralled instead with proclaiming everything from social justice to cultural engagement as if the goal of the gospel were to immerse us in the values and the jargon and the entertainment of this present world rather than to deliver us from it. You know, some people would rather talk about almost anything rather than the great themes of the gospel. But Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict you, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And yet, in countless pulpits today, those very topics, sin and righteousness and judgment, are purposely omitted in the name of relevance. That's the inevitable result when church leaders allow an itch for something new to influence their message or their ministry philosophy. This, I think, may be the chief besetting sin of the 21st century evangelical movement. Here's a second fleshly lust that causes preachers to go off message. Number two, an urge to modify. Verse 7, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul makes it clear that these false teachers had a bad motive, born out of an evil desire. They had some kind of premeditated plan to warp and wrench the gospel out of shape. And again, I don't think this necessarily means to suggest that these guys were self-consciously in league with Satan, you know, seeking to be sinister and knowingly conspiring to do evil out of a sheer hatred for Christ. They most likely did not think of themselves as enemies of Christ. In their self-deceived and spiritually darkened minds, they probably believed that they were improving the gospel, making it more harmonious with Moses' law, removing a serious stigma from the Gentile converts, fixing what they saw as a glaring deficiency in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Their problem was not that they had an itch for something new. That love of novelty may have been what made the Galatians so susceptible to false doctrine. But the circumcision party had a totally different agenda. They wanted to preserve elements of the old covenant that were being brought to an end. And so they had this urge to modify the gospel, perhaps to devise a message that would be more acceptable to their own priests and scholars. They wanted something more sophisticated than the simple message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember, these guys were apparently former Pharisees, and they probably wanted to devise Christianity in a way that wouldn't offend the Pharisees, so maybe we could all get together. They wanted their religion to be, therefore, more polished, more ornate, more congenial to human pride. And I'll say this, too, since I've already got everybody... Everybody's toes hurting. This urge to modify is the bane of many who live in the academic realm. Nowadays, if a seminary student writes a dissertation on any of the central doctrines of the gospel, he will very likely be encouraged 
or perhaps even formally required to concoct some normal, some novel point of view or make an argument that has never been proposed before against some magisterial principle. In much of the academic world, it seems the prevailing philosophy is, if it's not new, it's of no value. And so, ostensibly evangelical scholars constantly spin out new perspectives and other modified doctrines, and even the most basic, long-established principles of Trinitarianism now get recklessly revamped and reimagined with a fair amount of frequency. That's the fruit of the postmodern idea, you know, that nothing is settled, nothing is certain, nothing is really authoritative. Everything nowadays can be reimagined and refashioned and tweaked and twisted. Even supposedly conservative evangelical scholars sometimes seem infected with a relentless urge to modify their own confessions of faith. And you know what? Even the circumcision party wasn't that foolhardy. The truth is, the modification they made to Paul's gospel seems rather insignificant by today's standard. They didn't question the authority of Scripture or the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They didn't directly attack the concept of substitutionary atonement. What they proposed boiled down, really, to a slight change in the ordo salutis. They thought it was necessary for some kind of good work to precede justification. Paul taught, you know, that good works flow from saving faith, not vice versa. So a person is fully justified at the first moment of faith, and then obedience follows as the inevitable fruit of authentic faith. Paul stressed that faith alone is the instrument by which sinners lay hold of justification. Again, that's Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but believes, his faith is counted for righteousness. So justification comes first, then works. And the circumcision party said, no, a a minimal expression of obedience. You know, there's that first act of compliance with the ceremonial law really ought to be made a necessary prerequisite for justification. Obedience first, then justification. Think about this. Both sides agreed that faith without works is dead. Both sides believed that faith and obedience will always accompany genuine salvation. But they disagreed on the order. By the standards that are in vogue today, that may sound like a difference that's too small to worry about. In fact, here's what J. Gresham Machen said about that. He wrote this. About many things, the Judaizers were in perfect agreement with Paul. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus really had risen from the dead. They believed that faith in Christ was necessary to salvation. From the modern point of view, Machen says, the difference between them and Paul would have seemed to be very slight. Surely, Machen says, Paul ought to have made common cause with teachers who were so nearly in agreement with him. Surely he ought to have applied to them the great principle of Christian unity. But then Machen goes on to say, Paul did nothing of the kind, and only because he did nothing of the kind does the Christian church exist today. What seemed like such a small point of disagreement was in fact a wholesale attack on the central point of gospel truth. The circumcision party made justification hinge on a work done by the sinner, and that simple, seemingly small refinement destroys the whole gospel message. 
That happens every time someone decides the gospel is not sophisticated enough or scholarly enough or rigorous enough. When people start to tweak the gospel, they always inject some kind of work into the formula. Perhaps it's something as insignificant as walking an aisle or saying a formulaic prayer or being baptized or following some other simple ceremonial requirement. But to make any kind of human work instrumental in justification is to destroy the doctrine completely. Genuine saving faith is itself the natural expression of God's regenerating work. He is the one who opens spiritually blind eyes and grants repentance and awakens faith. Regeneration, faith, and repentance are all God's work by, wrought by God's grace. These are not human works. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, meaning every facet of your salvation is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the central tenet of gospel truth. And the Judaizers' tiny little modification totally nullified it because they eliminated the fundamental truth that no element of salvation is a human work. When it comes to the gospel, the urge to modify is damnably sinful. Now, let's review. Here are the sinful attitudes that give rise to a corrupted gospel. An itch for something new, an urge to modify, and now third and finally, if you're taking notes, number three, a craving for the applause of men. A craving for the applause of men, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of men or God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And the fact is, Paul could have pleased a lot of people if he had simply acquiesced to the circumcision party or even just ignored their error the way Peter seemed prone to do at first. A quest for human approval was quite clearly the dominant motive of the circumcision party themselves. They no doubt thought of their work as a shrewd public relations campaign. They were trying to remove something that they knew the rulers of Judaism found offensive about the gospel message. Paul himself more or less acknowledges that. He says in Galatians 5.11 that by preaching circumcision, he himself could have avoided persecution and removed the offense of the cross. The circumcision party probably convinced themselves that they were doing Christ a favor by making the message sound more appealing. What they were really doing was seeking the approval of man rather than God. And Paul says in verse 10, you cannot do that and think you are serving Christ. Paul knew very well what it was like to crave the applause of men because that was the dominant goal of his life before he was converted on the road to Damascus. He persecuted the church at the behest of the Sanhedrin because it gave him status with the most powerful ruling body of Judaism. In fact, according to Jesus, this is the central error of Phariseeism, Matthew 23, 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Multitudes in Israel rejected Christ and remained in unbelief for that very reason, John 12, 43. They loved the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. And you know what? There is no greater impediment to genuine faith. Jesus said, John 5, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Luke 16, 15, 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's strong language. And a sinful craving for the applause of men can produce a showy brand of legalism like that of the Pharisees. But not always. In the modern academic world, it makes people tend to stifle their convictions and over-nuance every point of truth so that in the end, truth lies hidden under a mountain of stammering qualifications and vague uncertainties. But you cannot faithfully proclaim the gospel if you mince words. You won't be clear and definitive if you are terrified of getting a negative reaction. And if you're not preaching the true gospel, you are not preaching the true gospel at all. If you have modified the message in a way that seeks the uh, approval and appreciation of your listeners. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. Jews demand signs and Greek de- Greeks seek wisdom. He acknowledges that. Now think about this. If Paul had a ministry philosophy resembling the strategy of practically every church growth guru who's in business today, the way ahead would be clear because he certainly had the ability to produce signs of a true apostle, signs and wonders and mighty works. And furthermore, he was the most highly educated of all the apostles, able to hold his own with the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus. He could have contextualized the gospel in the language of Greek wisdom with all the trappings of philosophical sophistication. But instead, he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Greeks. Rather than catering to the Jewish demand for a sign, he gave them a stumbling block. Refusing to answer the Greeks' demand for erudition and wisdom, he preached a message that he knew would sound like foolishness to them. Now understand this. Paul did not have some perverse agenda to frustrate his listeners. He went on to explain that this message and that strategy were God's choice so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Boils down to this, the gospel does not cater to human pride. And when we are tempted to tone it down or dress it up, we need to remember that. There is only one gospel, and it's too easy to nullify it or modify it or otherwise embellish it in order to fulfill some fleshly, self-aggrandizing desire. We need to guard carefully against all those tendencies the way Paul did. The earthly cost of... Faithful ministry may seem high, but the glory of heaven makes it more than worthwhile. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts are filled with less than noble motives. We love earthly novelties. When our minds and our hearts should be fixed on that which is eternal and immutable, we find it all too easy to edit and amend and over-contextualize the message you've commissioned us to proclaim. And like the Pharisees, we have that sinful tendency to love the applause of men and forget that your verdict on our lives is the only one that counts. We're grateful that we are hid with Christ and enveloped in the richness of your life and your blessings May we be faithful preachers of the gospel, no matter what the cost, regardless of the response. May Christ be honored in our prayers and in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.
So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you. The grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.